Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. We have made a commitment to clean, reliable, and fairly priced electricity. However, we've also made a commitment to electrify every home and every business in every locality that we go into. So if we have a contract with a municipality and we build a grid, we will not marginalize, we will not set aside any customer, no matter how small they are. This is Suncast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and action shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle, a battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. Well, well, welcome to episode 45 of Suncast. Hey, if you're new here, I'm your host, Nico Johnson, and we're here to help you unlock your potential as a leader in the solar industry. This show is typically the long-form narrative, where I interview leaders and executives about how they are scaling their solar companies and extract the hard-won lessons for your benefit and mine. The first 35 episodes were exclusively focused on Latin America content, but I'm making a bit more of a thematic or a series approach aimed at helping you thrive in your career, whether that's as a founder, entrepreneur, or leader inside of a growing company, whether you're focused on Latin America or the U.S. Some of our listeners come from Asia and Europe. So happy to have you all here listening to the show. The recent Solar Pioneer series we began and some upcoming series on solar storage, understanding solar finance, and much more are really aimed at helping you unlock that potential stored in the wisdom of other people's struggles, growth, and stories. So I hope you keep coming back for more. Gosh, I'm so glad that you're back with me again this week. Another month gone by and another 3,000 downloads for the show. You guys really amaze me. Seriously, thank you so much for your support. If you haven't already, one of the best ways that you can help is to subscribe to the show in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app and then rate and review it. The second best is actually to share an episode with someone that you know who is looking to learn and stay ahead of the curve in the industry. I love that you love this stuff enough to hear it, first of all, and even share it with your friends and coworkers. Last, I'd love to know, what are you struggling with? It's the cornerstone of why I do this show every week. It helps me, and I hope it helps you. What one thing is in your way that you'd like help solving? Are there any areas specific to your business or the industry as a whole that you wish you just had more information about or knew how to do better? or where you're getting stuck. Let me know. I love brainstorming ideas, and I love helping people think through these types of problems. If I don't know it, I just probably know someone who does, and we'll get them on the show, or I could probably reach out to them and bring their information back to you, the audience. Hey, if you'd like to schedule a one-on-one call with me, you can now do that at www.callnico.com, C-A-L-L-N-I-C-O. You can also just shoot me an email, nico at mysuncast.com, A LinkedIn message, a lot of you guys do that. Or you can go over to the website, as I've mentioned before, and leave me a quick voicemail right from your phone. It's really super simple, www.mysuncast.com. Well, well, today, we're going to take another pause in the Solar Pioneer series, returning to Latin America and a discussion that I recorded live at the Solar Plaza Unlocking Solar Capital event back in Miami in June. We had an amazing time at that conference, and I really do think the Solar Plaza does a really great job curating not just a great lineup of guest speakers, but on-point discussions about what's actually happening today in the marketplace. If you get a chance to attend one of their events, I do think that they're not to be missed. This week's discussion is with two returning guests, Juan Rodriguez, the CEO of Kingo Energy, and Andy Bendia, CEO of Segura International. And it was a bit of a free-form session where I got to get into the differences between their two approaches to building off-grid solar companies in Latin America. But the first 10 minutes is actually audio from the session right before this one at the conference, which was hosted by my friend Robert Constantino and was more broadly focused on raising capital in the Latin America market. The voices you'll hear are of both Juan and Andy, but also of Jose Ordonez, another Guatemalan 
who's been in the capital markets a long time and is a venture investor in several businesses in the sector. I hope you enjoy them both and that you consider attending a future Solar Plaza event. Thanks again to Solar Plaza for all the support and for letting me run around like a reporter at this event. Hey, speaking of conferences, I mentioned Solar Power International last week. Again, this week, it's right around the corner. Are you going to Vegas? You're going to be there the 10th to the 13th of September, just like me. Let's meet up. I'll be attending the annual Tweet Up, which is put on by my friend Tor Valenza, a.k.a. Solar Fred, and hosted by Kite Rocket, the company he's the chief marketing officer for Solar of. That's going to be Tuesday, September 12th, from 5 to 6.30 p.m. at Flex House, which is booth 6340 at Mandalay Bay Convention Center. You can go sign up for that by using the short code bit.ly, so bit.ly, forward slash SPI tweet up, and that will take you to the registration page. bit.ly forward slash S-P-I-T-W-E-E-T-U-P. No dot com, anything. All right. Thanks again for taking the time to be here. I really hope that you find a lot of value in this week's episode of Suncast, starting with this segment led by Robert Constantino on raising capital in Latin America. to start a business from zero and own it forever, right? They're not looking for exits. They're, they want that position, you know, where they're, um, you know, defining the strategy, executing it, and then keeping, um, you know, uh, the dividends. Um, when you go, you know, uh, a bit down to family offices that don't have the same level of liquidity but do have liquidity, they are, you know, younger family offices. They have a much broader vision, a global vision. They're much uh, more savvy in terms of tech uh, because it's, it's, let's say, newer money, let's say, right, um, that has a completely different approach in terms of investing, right? Mm -hmm. So I think, again, the, the mid-tier family offices have a more global vision while the bigger ones, like the, there may be five, you know, huge families in Guatemala that, you know, control most of the economy. We knocked on those doors and we never received any true response, right? Okay. And Jose and Andy, can you speak just very briefly about um, the pockets of capital that you've tapped into and to what, we, to what extent uh, they diverge? I think Anne summarized it precisely. I think there is a path, um, and it's basically start with the, uh, with the local family offices, then the DFIs, then the um, sort of mainline institutional capital. So, and what Juan was saying, I mean, we're, we're part of the same ecosystem. Uh, something that didn't exist before, there's now a sort of mini Silicon Valley in Guatemala um, that people are looking at, not, not just clean tech uh, where we are, but actually tech in general. Uh, there's there's a, a district in Guatemala City that is completely driven by VC, by tech ideas. And, and Guatemala is actually a, a very good place in the sense that it's an emerging market with uh, tremendous social and economic uh, problems and, and disparities but it's also a, a place with very creative people, and it's a very good lab uh, to test ideas, ideas that are then scalable and exportable to all the emerging markets. So, so actually, we're, we're very fortunate to be in this time in the right place uh, and, and, and sort of being part of creating this, this little ecosystem. Okay. I can absolutely uh, see uh, and second uh, what my fellow panelists uh, are saying about um, the, first, uh, the first couple of bucks uh, you raised seem to be the most difficult. And uh, it seems like in the earlier stages is very much so a, a buyer uh, market. And then as you move in the later on stages, you find out that there's less viable project than there is actual money for it. Mm -hmm. So in the beginning... Uh, we were not able to raise money from uh, any kind of family offices, big or small. So I went to the one crazy guy that I knew that would invest in something like that, uh, myself. So I put um, my own money in this crazy idea. Uh, and why did I do that? Because uh, I really believe in the market. I really believe in this opportunity. And if you take a look at what's happening in the electrification market and the diversification of the different segments and the, 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 the development of the different uh, sectors in the electrification market, if you overlap it with what happened to the telecom industry 20 years ago, it is, it is neck and neck. 
it is neck and neck. More available capital, and I, I completely agree with what uh, Anne was saying. Uh, I think the capital is out there. However, uh, you have to prove your ability to, 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 to execute. And to be able to prove your ability to execute, you need a little bit of cash to execute with. Uh, so it's a uh, chicken and the egg problem. <laughs> a, a little bit of a chicken and the egg problem. Hopefully, you get to cook both of them. <laughs> so, um, so um, I uh, honestly believe that the, the capital is out there. However, we have to prove to investors and to DFIs that the risks they are taking in these markets are commensurated with the returns they should be expected. And what we see is that in a lot of markets, the risks are significantly lower than the perceived risks. If you take a look at a country like Haiti, what's the latest piece of news you saw about Haiti? I guarantee you nine out of 10 of them are not positive. There's a lot of positive things happening in Haiti. It's an absolutely beautiful, gorgeous place. Beautiful Caribbean waters, great cooking. The only, the biggest problem I see with Haiti is roads. Roads are a little bit of a problem. They're kadunkadunka. But other than that, the, uh, you will help me with that. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Um, is, the trans, is, the, is the Minister of Transportation <laughs> here? <laughs> One day, if he fixes the roads, I hope he will become the Minister of <laughs> So, but other, other than, um, it's, it's, um, I, I don't see a problem with doing business uh, in, 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 uh, in Haiti. The risks that the, the, the market and the investors uh, are perceiving, that investors that do not know the market, are significantly higher than the actual uh, risks out there. So if you talk to people that know frontier markets, know emerging economies, uh, know Haiti, uh, um, you will get a much, much different uh, response than if you talk to somebody that's just watching the news. And then, I mean, you see how much attention the burning circus gets in the media. So, I mean, we need more positive stories emerging out of these, uh, these uh, markets that we're working on electrification. Okay. Um, I do want to give the audience an opportunity to ask questions, I, but I want to close with one other question for Fernando. So Andy has said there's plenty of capital out there. Anne has said there's plenty of capital out there. As a fund manager who's looking to fundraise and who at the same time has gone out and surveyed the landscape and identified a pipeline of, of opportunities and projects and so forth, to what extent is there a mismatch? Um, are you able, like, do you see far more demand than supply? And what is the potential size of the, of the fund that you, could, that you could grow and you could dedicate or devote to Latin America? Oh, definitely. The opportunity is there. Obviously, for a fund manager, it's always challenging raising capital, regardless of you know, how much you can show to prospective investors of solid pipeline. Uh, there, as, as I have experienced in the last you know, two years, there's uh, too many opportunities for the investors out there. Right now, you know, there's, there's uh, opportunities. We're not just competing you know, within, the, within the region, but oftentimes the same investors obviously have different opportunities right. within different regions. So uh, you know, it's a matter of, of, of striking a balance. You know, obviously, showing enough deal flow is, is one important, very important element. But at the same time, you have to show that you can deliver and you can go through the whole you know, life cycle and actually uh, exit. So that's, that's so important. And, and as I often tell our prospective investors, you know, we, we fail together, but we also you know, win together. And that's why we are, and this is especially when we are in the due diligence process that can at times be a little bit frustrating to our prospective investors, but that's, that's basically fundamental. We have to show not just the opportunity, and, and granted there is enough capital, it's just how we can actually show that these opportunities translate into viable solutions, not just for the sake of the market. And yes, you know, like for example, in the case of Kingo, we know the, the needs are out there. Uh, is how we actually transmit that firstly to our investment committee, but then ultimately to our investors, limited partners, that those opportunities do represent viable investment opportunities. And it only you know, uh, comes when you can actually show that it is 
it is working. It's, it's companies that are, are operating, are doing well, are being able to repay, perhaps, you know, as through a, that process that Anne was, you know, laying out, yeah, the angel investors, the early stage investors are, are going to actually see the, the, the progress. Uh, and then later on comes the other development finance institutions. So sort of we are sort of a combination. Mm -hmm. uh, and then later on, then definitely we are going to attract the, the kind of uh, investors that we are all uh, waiting for and wanting for in, in the years to come. So um, again, I think that definitely there's, there's enough uh, deal flow. There is enough money. The match is, is somehow tricky. But uh, I did another you know, fund uh, on, on clean energy specialized in Central America 10 years ago. And uh, even though the fund was smaller, it would, and you would think that there were more opportunities in the energy space, particularly more on the, on the grid-connected uh, sector, I don't think there was so much deal flow as there is today. Mm. Partly because there's a recognition that en clean energy is the way to go. There's much more attention by many other, you know, by many, many different uh, groups, uh, not just, you know, developers, uh, suppliers, but also financiers and investors. And I think that that sort of creates the conditions right now for us to see much more activity than what it was like some 10, five years ago. That's interesting. Anne. Maybe to, to mitigate a little, a little bit what I said before, I think there is capital, but it's not because there is capital that it is easy to lock capital. <laughs> so, <laughs> but there is, a, there is, there, there are investors, but there are, even if they are around the tables, there is a lot of work to, to finalize the deal. And so we need to have a lot of capital to be able to, to do a few deals. <laughs> okay. All right, I hope that first segment was interesting for you. It was just the tail end of an incredible session Robert Constantino moderated. I really wish I could have recorded the whole thing, but hopefully the bits we got were insightful. Up next, a candid live discussion with two previous guests of the show, as I mentioned before, the CEOs of Kingo Energy and Segura International, respectively Juan Rodriguez and Andy Bindia. These are two of the smartest and hardest-working young entrepreneurs I've had the pleasure to interview, so I hope you enjoy this unscripted live interview. I had the distinct pleasure, thanks to Solar Plaza, of having Andy and Juan on my solar podcast called Suncast, where independently they talked a lot about their business models, and it occurred to me, and I discussed with Solar Plaza, the notion that on the surface they're both off-grid, which is why they're in this sort of channel, they're not in the other two uh, pods or bays, but underneath the hood, they're two fundamentally different approaches to a similar problem. And I thought it would be fun, and they agreed, for us to kind of dig into, from the perspective of two CEOs who've gone out and raised capital, and they're growing a business that is fundamentally saving lives, what are the differences? Like, when we get under the hood, What's the difference between the, the, two, the two ways these vehicles are bringing empowerment to these communities? So we've got, obviously, Andy Bendia from Segura International with a mini-grid micro-utility approach. We've got Juan Rodriguez from uh, Kingo with a more community enablement model, I would call it. Uh, home solar, it's been said. Pico solar is the word, the, the term de jour in Africa. Uh, these days. I would like to start with the, a, a very specific delineation. Could each of you talk about how you characterize the notion of the average system size? Because as we talk in the solar industry, I'm sure your investors ask, well, what's the average system size or what's the average ticket? Uh, how do you think about the, this, this notion of the average system size of the, of, that you're deploying? So I think there's a, a couple of things that we take into, into consideration. Uh, the first thing is uh, the customer, right? Uh, we understand the customer. Uh, it is at the center of every decision that we take. And we want to understand the economics of the customer, right? So based on the economics um, uh, and what the market research tells us, that's how we start 
trying to dimension uh, the systems, right? So we're talking about customers that are coming from zero electricity mm -hmm. to finally having uh, some sort of, of solution, right? So that's, that's the second point. In uh, our approach, uh, what we're seeing is that we don't need to go from zero to 100, right? Uh, because that won't make it economically viable, which is how those two points um, correlate or, or interact, right? Um, so uh, let's say we have a variety of systems uh, from like a 7-watt system to a 200-watt system, and that allows us to reach a higher penetration. Yeah. But initially, we had one system, which right. was the 15-watt the system. And with that system is the one that I said we had very good customers right. that wanted more power, and then we have very bad customers that were spending less on the substitute initially, you know, the yeah. candles and the kerosene. So, um, you know, putting the customer at the center uh, then helps us make the decision in terms of how we're going to size up uh, the system. Which presumably the also uh, propagates the need for multiple products, which you mentioned earlier. Exactly. So in average, let's say uh, one of our customers will have five to seven hours of power. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't need to offer them 24 hours right now because they don't even have the appliances to connect to, um, to our system. So yeah. now we're uh, moving a step further and now we are providing access and financing to all of those other appliances, right? So we have systems where we have TVs or computers or tablets or systems that are bigger that have refrigerators or, mm. um, you know, pumping um, water or small motors, right? So it's just an array of different solutions that allow us to penetrate the different segments within the off-grid segment. I get it, I get it. Andy, how about for Segura? So, um, in talking about uh, typical system size, uh, it's a little bit different because uh, we, we are building what's in essence a mini-grid, but then once this mini-grid is interconnected with the mini-grids next to it, it becomes an actual power grid. Uh, what we're working on building right now is a 27,000 account mini-grid. It's 136,000 people. We haven't finished yet, we're in process. Mm -hmm. Um, so, in talking about system size over here, this, this 27,000 uh, account, 27,000 households and businesses will roughly use uh, 3.5 megawatts of uh, megawatts capacity of solar and wind and battery backup. Now, um, that's to answer uh, the first part of mm -hmm. the question, the generation side. Uh, on the distribution side and on the customer side, uh, I can absolutely second. Uh, 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 the fact that you have to put the, the customer at the center of the equation. The customer. Um, what does the customer ultimately want? What does the customer want right now? And what does the customer ultimately want? And uh, what we have seen is that uh, people are asking more than anything for, we want refrigerators. Uh -huh. Okay, so when we designed our prepaid energy metering technology, we said, okay, well, hold on for a second. If we go into a community and we give everybody capacity day one to, to, to run as much uh, power as they, uh, they want, our transformers are going to start blowing up about uh, Sunday morning at about 8 a.m. when everybody's ironing their shirts to go to church. Yeah. Uh, and that's not, it's, it's not going to work. Now, we said that, hey, we want to be able to eventually provide our customers as much power as they need at a minimum update cost, which led us to designing our metering technology in such a way that we can dial down how much power actually flows through it. So our metering technology allows us to move the needle anywhere between 0 and 1,800 watts. And we want it to be at 1,800 watts because we wanted it to be capable of supporting electrical cooking. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, the majority of our customers are set anywhere between 100, 200, 400, 500 watts. Uh, of course, if you have a refrigerator, you need a little bit more, more power when the, the compressor kicks on and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, we, can, we design the system in such a way that we can, we can tailor the distribution to exactly the needs of the customer. At least that was our attempt uh, to begin with. Got it. So I heard in, uh, in the last session you say something that you repeated on the show. You said, we make kilowatt hours and we sell kilowatt hours. Mm -hmm. And I've heard you distill that as your business model to the essence of what you do. 
Um, and, and then there's sort of a secondary argument around increasing collection rate and providing sort of energy stability. Uh, but effectively, you characterize the nature of your business as a one product business with, multi with, with sort of a community as your, as your, uh, as your uh, customer. Is that fair to say? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I feel that electricity, and I'm going to say something that some of you guys are going to like. So I feel that electrification and electricity is simple. It's mm -hmm. compared to, and you've heard me say this before, <laughs> compared to the other problems we have in the world, electrification and electricity is simple. It's healthcare is complicated. Sanitation is complicated. Those are complicated problems. This one is easy, is easy to monetize, is easy to plan for the future, and so on and so mm -hmm. forth, compared to everything else. Yeah. That is not to say that it is absolutely simple. Now, my take on business is quite simplistic. It's like, Take in more money than you spend out, all right? So that translates in effectively and consistently collecting revenue. If you run a bakery and you collect revenue for only 17% of the bagels that you send out the door, that is not a financially viable business. You will be out of business in the matter of a couple of days. Yeah. So our thinking is that not just for ourselves, but we have designed this energy metering technology in such a way that utilities in frontier markets, including ourselves, can effectively and consistently collect revenue for one product, one product only, kilowatt hours or buckets of energy or just one product. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah. And uh, in contrast, I really love the way that you don't talk about, I mean, I think it fits the business model for Kingo. You don't talk about that you have a product, you talk about a business that empowers community and you substantiate that with metrics like productivity, safety in the home. Uh, you mentioned a number of others that I failed to capture, uh, but you are very knowledgeable about the impact beyond just supplying kilowatt hours that Kingo as a business brings in changing lives in, in the communities. Um, still, your one of your responses in the previous panel was we just sell time and so i'm contrasting you just sell kilowatt hours and you just sell time is that a fair characterization of your business partially maybe um i would say that what we sell is access right um these communities have been completely marginalized from any type of access right so by us bringing access to energy pretty much is a bridge to access uh -huh. to any other type of um, information, um, entertainment, infrastructure in general, right? So when we're talking about, um, you know, Kingo and its access to uh, off-grid communities, um, we're talking about uh, potentially tapping into a market where, uh, nobody has ever gone pretty much, right? There's no infrastructure uh, that uh, distributes, you know, traditional products there. Like shopkeepers that sell, you know, chips there have to go out of their communities and yep. bring those chips back to sell them, right? So what we want to is leverage on that access yeah. relationship that we're developing with the customer. So the first step is, is energy, but we're soon bringing access to information and to entertainment and because we're tapping into the bottom of the pyramid mm -hmm. um, and people have never had access to energy, they have no uh, appliances in their homes. They have, of course, no financial capability to also pay for those appliances, right? So we're looking into, you know, in increasing the scope of, of what access means, right? Not just energy. And we, we're seeing it all over the place, right? Like when you see telcos, originally they were bringing cell phones, now they're bringing, you know, internet, and then they're bringing satellite dish TVs, and right. now they're bringing, you know, Apple is getting into your home by bringing, you know, not only your iPhone and your iPad, but also, you know, they just launched a week ago their version of the, of the Amazon Echo, which is pretty much just getting into the home and providing access to all these other, um, you know, important aspects of uh, the day-to-day -day lives of, of our customers, right? So I think in, in many, um, or it, I don't know, many concepts you would potentially say that we would compete against Apple in the future, right? Because we're bringing access to 
information, access to entertainment, and access to you know just development in general. Uh, go ahead. I want to mention something. Uh, since since um, energy access and information access go hand in hand, uh, if you take a look at uh, the cell phone uh, penetration in a, in a, for example in Haiti. 87% of the population over 15 years of age has at least one active cell phone. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, um, how are you charging these cell phones? And uh, in, in, uh, you go to a street vendor and you pay 10 Haitian goods to charge your flip phone, which is about the equivalent of $104 per kilowatt hour. Now, uh, $104 per kilowatt hour, and my math has been validated by my engineers, so, so uh, it's, it's, it's ludicrous uh, if you really think about it in these terms. But at the end of the day, um, all right, if you can actually charge your cell phone and your devices, you, you have the, the, the appetite for more information consumption. So that's why we decided, like, hey, if we are bringing electrification, we want to bring access to information as well. So our meters are designed in such a way that they can broadcast localized content and they create a mesh network that meters communicate with each other and allow you to get online where you have actually a pipeline coming into the community. So access to information and electricity do go hand in hand and you will see more and more companies uh, just like the two of us are talking here, that, that combine uh, the two of, of them. Yep. Yeah. I, I'd love to hear if there's a difference, and perhaps there's not, in the payment rates and default and how you handle default as a part of your business model. Because uh, it's something, obviously, you have to consider when you're raising money, what happens when folks don't pay. So can we talk a little about that and how it, may, it might be different uh, for the different models? I think Juan is going to be a whole lot more on the spot than I am due to uh, Kingo's uh, scale uh, compared to us. So uh, we are at uh, 1,000 accounts in the field right now, and we're activating our second grid uh, on Tuesday next week. Uh, our We do not have default at this moment. Yeah. So all the accounts we have, they are, they are active. There's a couple of people that went on extended vacations or immigrated to the States. But, uh, so let me press in a little further then. Are you, 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 you barely clearly stated before that you're 99.98% uh, payment rate because it's all prepaid. Is there a moment in time where Segura moves away from 100% prepay and you have a, uh, a monthly model similar to Kingo where your customers subscribe instead of going yeah. and, and buying scratch off cards for minutes yeah. the way they would their cell phones? Yeah, so right now uh, there, there is no scratch card. So basically you go, you go to the local vendor just like you do with uh, cell phone uh, minutes. You, you give them your uh, uh, account number and a couple of, uh, a couple of coins or, or cash. Or, uh, and by the time you get home, your lights are on. Mm -hmm. So uh, no scratch cards. Uh, you <laughs> get lost and they're expensive. And, um, uh, but uh, we do already have a few post-pay customers. So... Uh, our our capacity for for generation is large enough that we have a couple of hotels powered up. Uh, we branched up the two uh, telecom towers uh, in town and so on and so forth. So the larger customers that have signed contracts with us yeah. are actually post pay, and our metering system is designed. I mean, what's at the end of the day is like we we like to complicate things and make ourselves <laughs> like oh man this. Uh, this super, super uh, complicated thing we've designed. What's at the end of the day a post-pay metering system? It's just, it's just a prepaid metering system that you put the minimum balance in the negative. So <laughs> it's nothing more, it's just a change a part of the code and it's done. Yeah. So we have the ability to do that and we will do it whenever the case uh, makes, uh, makes sense. Mm -hmm. And what I want to mention with, um, again, uh, the, the, the uh, bringing access to, uh, to energy, we have made a commitment to clean, reliable, and fairly priced electricity. However, we've also made a commitment to electrify every home and every business in every locality that we go into. So yeah. if we have a contract with a municipality and we build a grid, we will not marginalize, we will not, we will not um, um, uh, set aside any customer, no matter how small they are. Mm. Some of our customers consume only 22 kilowatt hours per year. Wow. Our average micro-residential customer consumes 
300 kilowatt hours per year. Per year. So that's, that's less than a refrigerator. That's amazing. At home. So um, with that, I'll stop talking. One. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. As you scale, the the churn or the default rate becomes one of the biggest, you know, indicators of the success of the business model. Um, and you know, as we've, you know, continued expanding, um, we've continued learning that the way that you control the churn or the default rate is by having um, a correct uh, value proposition or the correct product for uh, the correct profile of customers. So profiling the customer is you know, one of the hardest things to do and one of the most important things, right? So, um, you know, in the past when we had one single product, uh, we were picking up around, uh, you know, 2.5% of the total installation base per month, let's mm. say, right? Yeah. So if you, you know, multiply it by 12, it's like, you know, 25, 30% of the total installation base. Once we started launching other products that were tailored to the real capabilities of um, the customers, that started coming down, right? Yeah. So then the challenge was make sure that you give the correct product to the correct person so that you don't lose that revenue that could potentially be generated, right? Um, so right now we're, we're pretty much uh, picking up around 1.5% of the customer base, um, and we're still planning on uh, launching an additional two products to the portfolio within the next six months, uh, which hopefully is gonna bring it down maybe to 1%, which is our target. Um, but in any case, in the end, if you do have to pick up a customer that has gone to default, um, the good thing about the retail model uh, sorry, the, the service model versus the retail model is that um, you maintain ownership of that asset. Yeah. So when you say churn, we don't, like in, in the telcos, the churn is, you know, you lost the client, but you lost the asset. Yeah. In our case, we don't lose the asset. We recover it and we reinstall Redeploy. it. And the way that we've um, designed our post-sales service agent is that, uh, service, sorry, is that we have uh, a post-sales agent uh, per each 600 users. And this post sales agent is hired directly from the communities. So he manages a radius of around you know, 20, 30 kilometers. Um, and he is always um, you know, incentivized to keep the churn down and also to increase penetration. So even though there's a churn down, you always increase penetration because you know, there's always new customers, new products that you're bringing that the churn is pretty much neutralized because you're adding more than you pick up. Yeah. Um, so I heard Paul from Proparco yesterday say that Proparco now has a mandate, and he calls it the 2x and 3x, and it's uh, kind of siloed into two very broad-based uh, categories of how they measure their impact to get 2x, uh, 2x revenue and 3x impact on that revenue. And they book it, put it in two buckets that I'm curious if you guys measure. One is job creation, and the other, I'm sure you do, is uh, effectively carbon offset or climate change mitigation. Uh, how do you think about that with regard to your, uh, your investors and, uh, and the overall impact that you seek to bring? Is it, it's in particular, I want to talk about the first bucket of, of job creation because I know that's something that both of you are very intent on being a core value. And do you know the numbers per user, like you said, one per 600, of jobs you're creating by systems you're installing? Okay. Um, so, you know... The good thing about, you know, our business models, I think, is that by us delivering better returns for the investors, we're generating more impact because then we're able to attract more cash, you know, get more customers, generate more impact, right? So it's like a, a virtuous cycle there. Um, in terms of, of how we generate uh, em employment is almost linear to the way that we're growing uh, the, the business. Right now we're around like 250 people. Mm -hmm. uh, in Guatemala, there's like, we started Colombia, there's like 25 people in Colombia. Um, but in any case, uh, there's the direct employees, um, which about 80% are field operators either promoting and installing the systems or the post-sales service agents. But then we have the shopkeepers that sell uh, the prepaid credits, right? So right now we have like 2,000 shopkeepers that make 6% out of every transaction that they sell. So eventually Kingo, like Kingo Credit becomes a product that gives them the best profitability within their store. So, um, you know, there's uh, an array of, of, of touch points where we're generating uh, value and income. 
Um, and, um, you know, uh, just one last point is that because we have that post-sales service strategy where we need to be close to the customer and have that fast response, around 60 to 70% of our workforce is hired directly from the communities. Wow. So it's people that were earning, you know, $100 a month, now are earning $500, $600 a month. Wow. Um, so just so you guys know, we did not compare notes before we talked here. Um, as far as employment uh, goes, uh, there most definitely is uh, very visibly three di distinct uh, categories. Uh, number one, you have direct employment, uh, technicians that uh, that uh, build out the grid, so linemen and technicians that operate bucket trucks and, and do wire installation, digging holes and so on and so forth. Uh, number two, you have the, the, the vendors that sell uh, uh, energy and uh, they, they are selling it just similar to what Juan was mentioning, uh, just like they sell cell phone minutes uh, and they make a 5% uh, uh, return on on uh, on uh, every uh, dollar they sell, uh, and then the third one is uh, indirect employment, and uh, this is this is a very very important one, because uh, if you if you bring um, capable electrification to a place like Mont Saint Nicolas, which is a fisherman community that never had the ability to take their product to market because they didn't have the ability to freeze the fish in any way, shape, or form, you will start seeing some productive activities that actually generate employment. You start seeing things like ice cream making operations. You start, you start seeing things that, frankly, none of us thought we would, uh, we would, uh, we would see. We expected it, we hoped uh, for it, but uh, you most definitely uh, start uh, seeing economic uh, development and, and growth. Right now you have people that sell appliances. They bring them from the capital up to up to uh, mall and they, they sell appliances. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, as far as numbers go, uh, there are two very, very distinct phases for us. Number one is construction phase, which is incredibly uh, labor intensive. And number two is operation and maintenance uh, stage, which is basically two different companies. At the end of the day, it's an EPC company and then uh, a utility company that operates and maintains. So on uh, the, the EPC part, we have roughly 45 uh, technicians and linemen that work in Haiti right now. And once you move in the other uh, side of the equation, the, the operation and maintenance, you're roughly three to four employees per thousand uh, accounts. Uh, we are strive, just like Juan was mentioning, to employ as much as possible from the local communities we serve, whether it's managers, whether it's customer service representatives, technicians. We make a consistent effort to train people. We have a lot of high school kids that were training to become technicians. Uh, they are extremely eager to learn and, and hungry for opportunity. Yeah. So I would say just give them an opportunity. Yeah. So I, rec I want to re uh, respect the fact that not only are we a little bit over time here, uh, but you've got a hard stop in four minutes. Uh, I, I, would, I don't know if there are questions in the audience for these guys. I mean, uh, you guys had a chance to grill them on the last session. Mr. Hansen. Just one question similar to both. Uh, one, in terms of their 15-watt system that was the, uh, your, your initial incumbent system, what would that be on a monthly basis if you run one month's worth of service? And then for, for Andy, for one year, let's say your typical 300 kilowatt hours per month, or perhaps even a smaller cost per food, what's the, what's the cost per kilowatt hour? Per well, year, per yeah, year, per, per year. year. So the, so the question is more around the, co the cost for the customer. Yeah. What are they paying for electricity? For the system to get access to, like, 15-watt system, what's that per month? Yeah. And then on the kilowatt hour, I think, you know, since you're selling kilowatt hours, what's, what's the cost of some of those smaller? Well, for our 15-watt system, um, you know, the monthly um, credit is around $14, right? But there's a mix of... of, of types of codes, right? So people can buy per month, per week, per day, or even per hour, right? So then you have an average revenue per, per user. Uh, so that is ranging right now around nine to $10 because there's customers that you know prefer to buy daily because that's the way they're paid, right? Um, but we have, let's say, uh, a Kingo uh, 15 plus that has a TV, 
right? That one, the revenue is around $15 a month. Then we have the Kingo 7, which is around $6 a month. So, you know, if you were to, you know, average out uh, based on the split of each product, um, right now we have around, you know, $9 a month uh, per revenue per user, right? Um, on our end, to if you take a look at the uh, micro-residential customer class, which the majority of our residential customers fall in this category, we're looking at anywhere between $1.70 and per month, all the way up to $8, $9 per month. So these are people that uh, use electricity to charge cell phones. They use electricity for lights and uh, small, very small uh, appliances like a fan, a TV, and so on, so so forth. If you're taking a look at the customers that already have a refrigerator, you're already looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of ten to twelve dollars uh, a month. Uh, if you take a look at all the way at the uh, at the cell phone towers, the hotels, they're a thousand, thousand five hundred plus uh, per uh, per month. Is it fair to, th these people are coming from not paying anything per kilowatt hour. Is it fair to characterize uh, on, a, on a per kilowatt hour basis, as Richard was a little bit asking uh, in terms of, and I don't know if you even have this data, how much this sort of boils down to on a dollar per kilowatt hour basis or a cents per kilowatt hour as, a, as an analog to what one would pay a utility? Well, well, well you are a utility, but what one? Well, <laughs> well but ho hold on for a second. If you take a look at a candle, a candle produces about 1.7 watts of light. Yes. And it costs you uh, however many cents. If you boil it down, you can create a kilowatt hour equivalent. Yes. And the kilowatt hour equivalent for a candle is $9 per kilowatt hour. Wow. All right? So, and it's, it's I mean, to, to study at the candlelight or to, to, it's very romantic and everything, but if you have to do it your entire <laughs> life, it begins to suck. I mean, it, it, it's dangerous. And so, com in com and so in comparison, how much is, is your kilowatt hour in Segura? Um, so like, you're grilling me on this kilowatt hour <laughs> question. Uh, I can't let you go. I didn't huh? hit either of you hard on my so, podcast. Uh, so, so by <laughs> comparison, so uh, uh, just to take a look at a kilowatt hour price is, is not, we're not actually for the micro-residential customer class, we are sure. not selling kilowatt hours. We're, we're selling service basically. Okay. It's, it's, there's no point in even talking about kilowatt hours because it's $1.70 per month compared to somebody that was paying roughly 12 to $14 before mm -hmm. on cell phone charging, $104 per kilowatt hour. Yes candles and lamp oil at sure. roughly seven to nine dollars per kilowatt hour. I, I agree and, I, and nobody here is arguing that you're ripping anyone off and we understand that they're saving money which is why you have yeah. a value proposition in business. I think for the rest of us who, who haven't looked at any of your financial models, we're really curious like our only analog comparison is well the average customer in Puerto Rico is paying 17 cents a kilowatt hour, right? Mm -hmm. uh, is, this, uh, is that a metric that off-grid is, is leaning, is able to deliver. Absolutely, but the average customer in Puerto Rico also has a $15 a month minimum charge. So if the customer consumes 22 kilowatt hours per year, that's less than two kilowatt hours per month, that kilowatt hour costs them how much? $7.50. So $1.50 minimum monthly charge plus call it uh, 20 cents per kilowatt hour. Fair enough. Yeah. Specifically, yeah, again, just seconding um, what Andy's saying is that we don't focus um, our, our pitch uh, at any point versus kilowatt hour because we don't compete against kilowatt hour. That's the reality. So um, for you, you come from an urban home, right? And you're actually you know, aware of how much you're paying per kilowatt hour. But out in the communities, people are aware of how much they're paying for candles, right? Yeah. Um, they, never make that uh, analysis or comparison, right? So what we're trying to do is always bring uh, a better value proposition that's cheaper than the substitute, right? Um, and in that sense, it's candles, kerosene, which is, as Andy said, like nine bucks per kilowatt hour. You know, us is much, much more expensive than kilowatt hour, right? But, yeah. but that's not uh, what we compete against. Gotcha. Talking about uh, talking about kilowatt hours in this micro residential marketing, comparing w one with the other one, it, it's, it's about the equivalent of comparing an Apple with a Volvo. It's just not a fair comparison by any stretch of the imagination. 
So um, I love I love Andy if for nothing but he gives me the best sound bites. The best sound bites. You had a question, sir, and we'll finish with that. A comment. This target issue is an easy one. In, in AD, we are trying to, there is a need to educate, to educate both customers and decision makers on this. So they don't listen that they, they, you should not com compare the tariff and microgrids with tariff and utility in AD. Because yeah. one example is that there is subsidies and the utility itself. Yeah. We don't have to recover all the costs of investment sometimes yeah. because yeah. some part of the procedure is, is is done through grant or, or other, other type of mechanism of financing. So compared to those guys where they invest for everything, just come into account and the, and the, and the tariff. So we, we want to make sure that we, we, we understand that they, the tariff should be, should be um, cost effective for, for the investor while it is affordable and equitable for the, for the customers. Yeah. So that's what we're working on. In yeah. and tomorrow we'll talk more about that. I think that, that is, uh, it's a valid point. I also want to point out that uh, you know, these guys are effectively in the infrastructure business. And as we look at their business models, while they may contrast altruistically and, if, and, 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 and in deployment, they are replacing, in many cases, the utility. Andy has a business model that's slightly different where he would say, we aren't replacing the utility. In fact, we believe that the utility one day is going to call on us and say, hey, we need your help. I would, I would argue that the same is true for Juan, and that both of these are not only community empowerment, but as you said, they are vehicles to allow commerce to exist in communities where it otherwise was isolated and forgotten. So I want to be one of the first to say thank you for the work that you're doing. Bravo. All right. I hope you guys had as much fun listening to that as I did recording it. And don't forget, SPI is coming up. I'll be in Vegas the 10th to the 13th of September. You can go register for the tweet up, and that is at the bit.ly short link, bit.ly forward slash SPI tweet up. That's all lowercase. It's going to be at booth 6340 at the convention center from 5 to 630 on Tuesday the 12th. Hey, if you're there at SPI and you do want to catch up, or if you want your company, idea, or executive to be considered for Suncast, hit me up. I'll be doing live recording on site, and I'm looking for more solar industry leaders willing to pull back the kimono and discuss what it really takes to make a business and an industry grow and thrive. What are you interested in hearing more about? Storage? Software? Commercial industrial solar? Sound off on LinkedIn or on the website. I'm counting on you to help make this thing more like what you want to show up for each and every week. That's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors, and you're now well-armed for battle. Hopefully, you'll take away some great tools for your own success. I'd love it if you'd share what you learned or share the episode over on LinkedIn. Let me know what other tools you need. If you want to sharpen the axe a little bit more, I've shared some of the resources we discussed in today's conversation over at mysuncast.com. Just click on the latest episode link in the title bar. Perhaps the best tool in your arsenal might be subscribing to the mailing list while you're there so that you'll get an email from yours truly when new content is available. Have a suggestion for someone you think should join the conversation? Email me, nico at mysuncast.com or shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Hey, that's it. Thanks for being here. Until next time, stay informed, my friend, and stay tuned.